episode of Alternate Views, where we try and piece together narratives of major world and regional events through interviews with ex-government officials, insiders from big corporations, writers, and political analysts. Today, I have with me on the show, Phyllis Dennis, a prolific author, activist, and political commentator. She's a fellow of the Institute of Policy Studies, focusing on the Middle East, U.S. foreign policy, and U.N. issues. Her latest book, ISIS in Syria, outlines the growth of the ISIS from 2014 to 2018, the conditions that gave rise to such an extremist movement, and the role of Western powers in the civil war in Syria. Uh, so, Phyllis, as we had uh, discussed earlier, this podcast is essentially trying to explore the th- themes of corruption, uh, you know, relationships between corporations and government, and also foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy, U.S. war on terror, and you know, its supposed support for international governments that are potentially exploited to their own people. Uh, and especially after reading your book, ISIS and Syria, I really wanted to get you on the show to sort of further understand this continual state of conflict that affects the Middle East, whether it was in Syria in the few years ago or currently whether it's in Yemen. What are those countries behind it? What are the ideologies, these the sort of competing ideologies here? And of course, what is the economic angle? Which entities you know, uh, stand to make money, lose money? And are there any businesses, corporations, governments that essentially benefit from this uh, states of conflict? So those are essentially the sort of themes that I want to explore today. Um, let me jump straight into the elephant in the room, which is essentially Saudi versus Iran. You know, we, we have seen that power struggle in the past as well in Syria, currently in Yemen. So can you please like tell us what exactly is behind this power struggle? How did it start? When did the relationship turn hostile? The tensions between... Saudi Arabia and Iran have a long history and they have really not much to do with the religious part. That's a a frame for it. Iran, of course, is largely Shia and its government is strongly Shia. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the opposite. It's largely Sunni and its government is hardcore Sunni. Um, But that's not the reason for it. The reason has to do with the usual sorts of regional challenges and regional fights over hegemony. Who's going to have more money from oil? Who's going to have uh, uh, more access to global markets? All that sort of thing. If you look back in history, a few decades, you can see that in all the Middle East, the countries that had the possibility to emerge as a regional hegemon, a regional power, uh, there were only two, Iran and Iraq. If you look, I mean, you could you can use all kinds of criteria, but I think the criteria that are the most useful is to say these were the countries that had size, size of, of territory and size of population, that had money, generally from oil, and that had water. Iran and Iraq were the only two that had all three. There were other powerful countries. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the other little oil petro states had lots of money, but they don't have water, they don't have size, they don't, they, they're not powers in the same way. Israel, of course, is an incredibly powerful country, but it's a derivative power. It's, a, it's powerful because of its relationship to the West originally and now to, to the U.S. in specific. So it's by far the most powerful country militarily, and it has water because it's stolen water from the Palestinians, uh, but it doesn't have size. It doesn't have, you know, its population is tiny. Uh, so it's not a power in the same way. 
So you had this tension between Iran and Iraq. It was one of the things that gave rise to the Iran-Iraq war of 1980. And then the U.S. does Iran a favor, essentially, and goes and takes out the regime in Iraq that made it a, a regional power. And suddenly, Iraq is now being governed by a set of governments imposed by the U.S. that have very little credibility. Uh, and Iran emerges as a far more strong regional power. In that context, the Saudis decide, well, you know, we could kind of emerge this way. We, you know, yeah, we don't have water, but we don't really need water. We have enough uh, capacity to, in, in uh, uh, science and technology to do the desalinization and all of that. And we will challenge Iran. And that challenge has been going on for a long time. It took its most brutal military form, of course, in Yemen. There have been situations where Iran and Saudi Arabia were kind of on opposite sides, but the really hard fight uh, paid for, we should say, not by Iranians or Saudis, but paid for by Yemenis, has been in Yemen when, for other reasons that we don't have to go into, Saudi Arabia intervened in Yemen, decided <clears throat> it was going to go to war in Yemen. And in that context, the, uh, the Houthi rebels, who are a longstanding indigenous Yemeni opposition force, uh, who had had some marginal ties to Iran, mostly because they're in the neighborhood, they're both, they're both Shia, they, they didn't get a lot of support from them, and they didn't really do what Iran wanted them to do, but they had some ties. When Saudi Arabia invaded with this massive air war that has now become what the UN calls the greatest humanitarian disaster in the world, and in this world today where there's so much competition for that position, that's a very big deal. In that context, uh, Iran emerged as a bigger supporter of the, of the Houthis and thus a bigger challenger to Saudi Arabia. So you now have this big regional fight, which then the U.S., that's where the U.S. comes in. The U.S. decides we're not going to just let these you know, junior partners fight it out. We're going to decide who we want to be the regional power. And so the U.S. decides, and particularly under Trump, this emerged, started under Obama, but it really emerged under Trump to say that what we're going to do is make sure that Iran is isolated in the world. We're going to impose these drastic sanctions on Iran, and we're going to spend all our focus in the Middle East, our support for Israel, our support for the Saudis, for the other little Gulfies, for these right-wing absolute monarchies. We're going to make sure that building an anti-Iran coalition is the framework for that policy. So that's that's the story here. It's not about religion. It's really not. And we have seen also, especially under the Trump administration, that the so West and the US in particular lean a lot more towards Saudi against Iran uh, and not the other way around. So what is the sort of reasoning in the US foreign policy regarding that? Well, you know, it's funny. In both cases, oil have obviously played a key role. It's it's not the only role. I mean, we have to be careful. There was a lot of talk. You'll remember during the Iraq war in, the, in its early years, it was talked about, this is a war for oil. We should not have wars for oil. Of course, we should not have wars for oil. We should not have a world dependent on oil because it's burning our planet. But aside from that, it wasn't only a war for oil, ever. Oil was a big part of it. Somebody once famously said that if the main export of Iraq was broccoli, you could be pretty sure that we would not be at war there, whatever else might be going on. 
which is certainly true. So it, oil was a, a major component. And oil was also a major component of the long-standing U.S. relationship with Iran that goes back to the 1920s and 30s, just like in its relationship with Saudi Arabia. When oil was first discovered in Saudi Arabia, the British at the time controlled it. Uh, it, was, it was sort of a colonial arrangement. Saudi Aramco, what is now Saudi Aramco, the biggest oil company in the world, was created in that time. It had different names. It changed, whatever. But the origins of it go back to like the 1920s and 30s. And in the 30s, right after world, in, in the beginning of World War II, the U.S. leaders met with Saudi leaders and essentially crafted a bargain. They said, we will provide whatever you need to protect your state. Um, because remember, this was a pretty new state. Saudi Arabia and all the states in the Middle East were only created in 1922 by the British and the French. Before that, it was Arabia, this broad territory that wasn't divided into states. There were historical regions. Palestine was a region that was known. Syria was a region. Syria included at the time Lebanon, parts of what's now Jordan. Um, but basically it was Arabia. In 1922, they divided it into states. So you have Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Jordan, all these nation states that had never existed before. So in that context, the US moves in, this is after World War II, uh, and says to the Saudis, we'll protect you. We'll provide you with weapons, with trainings, we'll train your military, we'll do whatever has to be done if you guarantee that we will have all the oil we ever need. It was a pretty good deal for all sides, except maybe for the people who happen to live there, and except maybe for the planet, but we will talk about that. So that was sort of the basis of the U.S. relationship to Saudi Arabia. With Iran, it was a very similar thing. Iran was ruled at the time by uh, a series of hereditary leaders, Shah, what they were called the Shahs, the Shahs of Iran, but then they moved towards a kind of democratic process. And by 1953, there was a, a real elected, democratically elected government in Iran, uh, led by a pretty democratic guy named uh, Mohammad Mossadegh. And he decided that, as opposed to what had always been the case before, where Iranian oil was under the control of either the British or the, or the US or some combination, that, what a notion, Iran should control its own oil. It was like revolutionary. And of course, the U.S. and the Brits also saw it as revolutionary, and they collaborated in a coup in 1953 to overthrow Mossadegh and reinstall what was then the son of the old Shah, a guy that was named Reza Shah, and he became the ruler of Iran until 1979. And he was Washington's best friend, right? There's these pictures of him with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, who is a fabulous human rights committed ex-president, was not such a human rights committed president, let's put it that way. And there's all these pictures of him toasting the Shah of Iran and praising his ability to maintain stability in his country, stability that was imposed at the price of incredible violence and incredible repression against the people of Iran. It was a brutal, brutal regime, torture, arrests, killings of dissidents, and it was particularly, you know, it's in the context of the Cold War, right? So Iran happens to have, among other things, among its oil workers, who are a big component of the working class of Iran, they have a very big communist party, what was known as the Tuda Party. And the Tuda Party is particularly strong in the oil, among the oil workers. And the U.S. is saying, oh dear, 
they probably said something stronger, but we're on the air, so I won't say. Uh, they're like, oh dear, we can't have this. So that was part of what was going on in the U.S. concern about why having this democratic government in Iran was not okay. So the Shah gets imposed, and there's years, decades of massive repression. You know, this is from 1953 until in 1979. I was going to say suddenly, but it, there was nothing sudden about it. It had been brewing for years. You have a revolution. And the Shah is overthrown, sent into exile in the U.S., and the Islamic Republic is born. Now, that wasn't inevitable. There might have been a secular democratic government instead. A lot of Iranians were fighting for that. But among the various forces that were fighting against the Shah, ultimately the ones who won out were the supporters of the original leader of the Islamic Revolution, uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. And that sector of the forces who overthrew the Shah remain in power today. And that might have been okay. That might have been okay in terms of relations with the U.S., with some tensions and whatever, except for two things. The first of the two was right after the revolution, when a bunch of young and very hardcore supporters of Khomeini decided that their contribution to the revolution would be to uh, kidnap a bunch of U.S. diplomats who were still staffing the U.S. embassy in Iran and hold them hostage. And the hostage crisis emerged. So the hostage crisis was a real crisis. It was a couple of hundred people, I think it was 300 people, something like that, who were being held hostage. It was pretty unpleasant for all of them, although nobody was hurt, nobody was tortured, nobody was killed. But obviously it was not a good situation for them. Uh, but in the U.S., it gave rise to this incredible level of not just anti-Iran mobilization, but enormous Islamophobia. I remember at the time there were T-shirts that had pictures of Khomeini with a uh, like a target over it, you know, that were very, very popular. And that antagonism stuck in the U.S. long after the hostages were all freed. So that was the first part that made things very tense. And you can see in among in the diplomatic community of the U.S. today, that anger, that sense of they can't do this to us. We are the big superpower. They can't do this. And yet they did, right? And people were really, really angry. So that led to a, a level, a years-long level of hostility. That started to fade. And ironically, it was after the attacks of 9-11 which of course Iran had nothing to do with, although at times they were blamed for various things, as Iraq, which also had nothing to do with it, was also blamed. Uh, it was a very convenient thing to happen. It was such a horrific attack that you could kind of blame anybody and people would say, oh my God, yes. you know. But what happened ironically was that after the attacks, when the US announced the real change in the world was not going to be the attacks of 9-11, but the response that was announced on 9-12, the day that George Bush announced that our response will be to take the world to war against this terrorism, Iran decided to sort of cooperate with the U.S. for its own reasons, good and bad, mostly bad in my view, but whatever. They were working really, really closely with these U.S. diplomats who ultimately in, uh, in Bonn, in Germany, pulled together a bunch of mainly exiled uh, Afghans who had not been home in some cases in decades and created a little government in a box that they said, we're going to pick up this box, 
carry it over to Kabul and establish a government. And it's going to look just like our government. It's going to be a parliamentary system. It's going to be based with this, with a very strong central governing council, none of which had any history in Afghanistan. So it was pretty much doomed to fail. But for whatever reasons, Iran was very involved in that whole process. The, the U.S. chief of, of that mission said later that the Iranian ambassador was his closest ally in making that happen. So you could imagine that, you know, something good might have come out of that. Maybe there could have been a normalization process between the U.S. and Iran. Maybe there could have been what they used to call a grand bargain, where there would be negotiations between the U.S. and Iran, and everything would be on the table. All the stuff that Iran does that the U.S. doesn't like would be on the table, and everything the U.S. does that Iran doesn't like would be on the table. That seemed like a possibility. But instead of that happening, the next thing that happens was George Bush gives this famous speech where he says that Iran is part of the, quote, axis of evil. And at that point, the Iranian said, oh, thank you very much. And so, no thanks. We're not going anywhere near new negotiations. And since then, the relations have gone even further backwards than they did. So that's kind of the history of all of this. Right. There are a couple of interesting points that you make here for this. So the first thing that I, I was essentially that struck my mind was, so we have these oppressive regimes, uh, let's say the Shah of Iran, and when they are overthrown, it's been replaced by an by a Islamic theocracy, let's say. But you see the same trend occurring in, in in other places as well. So, you know, in Syria, for example, you know, you have an oppressive uh, uh, family in, in charge of Syria, but then the main opposition to them isn't the Free Syrian Army or isn't other democratic secular forces. It immediately becomes other Islamic, Islamist forces. Same thing in, uh, for example, Egypt, when Hosni Mubarak uh, was forced into exile, the Muslim Brotherhood stepped up. So why do we see this trend of when we have, you know, oppressive, repressive, brutal dictators, theocracies, you know, we have an Islamist movement trying to, like, you know, step up as opposed to a more secular democratic setup? I think it's always dangerous to try and assert that there is one reason for giant global trends that are underway. And the rise of Islamist movements in opposition to US-backed authoritarians is one of those giant global realities. There's not one reason. But one of the biggest reasons, I think, is historical. It's the failure of earlier forces to succeed at defeating imperialist forces in their regions, in their home countries. So Arab socialism for a long time was the kind of motivating force behind anti-imperialist forces. Arab socialism largely failed, not as an ideological project or even a political goal, but as a movement, it largely failed. Arab nationalism, which had a lot of hope for a while, ultimately failed in the era of neoliberalism and nation states, it, it could not survive uh, with the notion of, of the collaboration between states being the, the dominant force. It, it simply didn't, it didn't work. Even Arab versions of neoliberalism itself didn't work, not surprisingly, because it doesn't work anywhere, to answer the needs of 
populations who were increasingly without work, impoverished, and incredibly young. The Arab world has one of the youngest populations in the world, and it has a not bad education system in many countries, not all of them. But in those countries, you see this huge contradiction where you have <clears throat> large youth populations getting a decent education, going to college, many of them, or advanced training of some sort, and then they can't get a job. There's no jobs. So it's that sense of betrayal more than it's, you know, it's not like abject poverty. It's the sense of betrayal that they've been promised something socially that now is not available, that has led people to a level of despair and then out, outrage. And it's in that context that the appeal of Islamist uh, militancy has taken, has taken hold. That's different, I would say, than Islamism as a political uh, process and a political project. What you see with the Muslim Brotherhood, what you see in, uh, in Egypt under Morsi, uh, in that brief moment between the overthrow of Mubarak and, the, and the, the military coup that now remains in place, what you see in uh, Turkey. And that can be just as repressive, let's be clear, as others, but it's a different it's a different political reality than the use of Islam uh, and Islamic thought as a justification for massive levels of violence against the West uh, in a way that targets far, you know, far more often uh, the real victims of it, the, the, the much larger number of victims of it are local Muslims in their own communities. So that's where you see the rise of uh, uh, of Al-Qaeda, the rise of ISIS, the rise of these uh, non-state actors who use this Islamist frame. Then you also have these repressive governments who claim the right of Islam. That's where you see Saudi Arabia uh, to, some to a lesser degree, but the same principle in the UAE, in Jordan, where you have inherited monarchies who claim, in some cases, to be descended from the Prophet Muhammad, in other cases, simply claim we have holy sites here and therefore anything we do to our own population or anybody else is okay. And you have the kind of ultimate repression and ultimate uh, absolute monarchies that you see in Saudi Arabia right now. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's, there's a number of reasons. But it's, um, and, and one other thing, in some of the worst examples of violence, which Maybe ISIS in the recent period has shown us the, the worst kind of up-close and personal violence. I mean, they have, not, they have not killed nearly as many people as U.S. bombing in Iraq and elsewhere. Let's be clear about that. But the, the kind of violence, the glorification of violence, the up-close and personal nature of it has been by far the most horrific with, an, with a group like ISIS. One of the things that you saw was in the people, there was a, a study in Britain at the height of the ISIS control of what they like to call the caliphate, when they actually controlled territory in Iran and Syria. And they, they managed, I don't quite know how they did this study, but they managed to, to get interviews with a number of people from around the world, mainly from Britain, but some other uh, countries who were on their way to join the caliphate, who had chosen, not who had been forcibly recruited, but who had chosen to join and were on their way to Syria or on their way to, uh, to Iraq to join ISIS. What were the books they were bringing with them? 
And the most popular book, it turned out, was some version of Islam for Dummies, which was because these were not ideologically rigid Muslims who, who prayed five times a day and had these very hardcore conservatism, orthodox views of their own religion. It was a way of lashing out. It was a way of fighting back. And they thought, all right, these are the guys who are fighting. I'll go join them. So I guess I better figure out what they stand for, right? It was, it, it's a very odd thing because you sort of think that as, as violent as it was and as horrific in terms of the personal connection to that violence, that it must have been people who were so dogmatic in their religious views that nothing could, but that was simply not the case. It was simply not the case. I'm sure it was for some people. But there was this other whole core of people. Similarly, in Iraq, if you look at how was it that they managed to seize territory in this country that had a really powerful military, you know, let's look at the, the Iran-Iraq war hadn't been that far behind. And they had ultimately fought the Iranian military, which was far bigger, to a standstill. That war ended with a kind of stalemate. But the Iraqis, who were a much smaller country, much smaller population, a much smaller army, had fought the Iranians to a standstill. They were a good, well-trained, powerful army. And the leaders of that army, I met some of them in Iraq before the US invasion, whatever they were, these guys, they were not particularly religious. Let's leave it at that. Um, so the question remains, how did they how did they manage to get them on their side and, and win this control of territory? It has everything to do with the fact of the U.S. invasion. Okay. So you have this, this scenario where uh, Iraqis, including some former leaders of the Iraqi military, who had been dismissed by the U.S. occupation when it came into power, the first thing it did was to dismantle the military send home all these generals and colonels who were very powerful figures, were used to having a lot of power, a lot of control, and suddenly they had nothing. They couldn't even afford to feed their families. They have no power, they have no influence, they have no self-respect, and they're kind of desperate. So when ISIS emerges initially as a small, you know, small band of, of non-government, uh, small militia, if you will, but growing, they decide, you know what? These guys are going after this government the U.S. put in power that's going after us. We'll join them. What the hell? You know, there, there's almost that sense of it. And one result is they suddenly are providing ISIS, which is this little group that had been created in a prison, a U.S.-run prison in, in 2004. They provide ISIS with military know-how with weapons, with people who know what they're doing on a, on a battlefield, which ISIS didn't have, but the Iraqi military did. And a lot of those people went with ISIS. So there's this sort of transactional sense about it. Right. Got it. Okay. I mean, there's one thing that you also mentioned in, in your previous conversation was the fact that it may not be entirely sectarian in its nature, but we do see the sectarian lines creeping up in pretty much all those conflicts that have occurred, right? In Yemen, it's the Shia Houthis versus the Sunni government. In Syria, it's the Alawites, which is are an offshoot of the Shia school of thought in Bashar al-Assad, who's fighting against extremist Sunni elements. So 
where does the sort of uh, the struggle for hegemony and power intersect with the inherent sectarianism that's yeah i i think we have to be careful because i think that if you look at syria yes the powerful forces in the in the ruling family they were alawites and so when you have a scenario for example one of the things that that led to the the war in syria was a climate crisis from 2006 to 2009 you have this massive drought in the richest agricultural parts of syria what had long been known as the bread basket of the middle east right and suddenly in that period in 3 years you have 800,000 syrian farmers and their families forced off their land they can't live they have no water they're forced into the cities and they're desperate to find jobs well there aren't very many jobs there's neoliberalism now there's privatization underway this is not pre 2000 where the the earlier part of the of the assad family had a kind of state socialism that if nothing else it provided jobs or make work of some sort to the vast majority of the population that didn't exist anymore people are struggling to find jobs so what happens if you can find a job it's probably because you know someone close to those in power the people close to those in power are more likely to be uh, uh alawites because that's who's in power it's not because anybody in power cares about alawite traditions they're they're as secular as could be in that country similarly in yemen yes the the houthis are mainly shia but houthi demands and the houth the mobilization of houthis has nothing to do with religion it has to do with political power it has to do with land and it happens that they are mainly houthis but that's not the motivating factor so i think we have to be really careful not to equate a an objective reality that most of one side is one sect and most of the other side is another sect to say that it's somehow a battle over religious anything right got it understood okay fair point um and just to go, move on on a bit of a tangent we did see earlier in this year a sort of normalization of the relationship between UAE and Israel and i also believe that bahrain uh not too long ago also like normalized relationships to some extent yeah. do are we going to see in the future like a more normalized relationship between saudis and uh, israel for like example and what does this mean for the sort of geopolitics of that region this has everything to do with the us goals particularly the goals of the trump administration the most extremist kind of support for israel and we should be clear that extreme support for israel is not new to donald trump the 38 billion dollar grant of our tax money directly to the israeli military was signed off by obama not by trump but it's continuing it's 3.8 billion dollars a year goes directly to the idf but the question of saudi relations with israel which has always been the you know the biggest get if you will for israel in terms of its normalization with the arab world has been underway for a long time it's been very covert it's been very cautious it has to do there's long standing security arrangements in terms of agreements over what kind of weapons each side will have there's trade there's commercial relations but there's never been any open uh um diplomatic ties that could change but in my view it will not change as long as the king is alive the king has granted 
most ruling power to the crown prince, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. The crown prince, I think, in a minute would normalize relations with Israel. He has no interest in what the, you know, the views are of the Saudi people particularly, and he certainly doesn't care about the Palestinians. Uh, this is all about his relations with the West. It's about money. It's about the modernization of the Saudi economy. It's all those things. Israel is a great market for all that. He would do it in a minute. The challenge he faces, and it seems to be only on this issue, the king doesn't seem to agree. The king was very supportive of his predecessor's uh, Arab peace agreement of 2002, which basically says that normalization between Israel and all the Arab states is a goal. We should do it all, but not until Israel withdraws from all of the 67 territories, engages with a just solution of the uh, of the the refugee crisis. That is not close to happening. And as long as the king is alive, I don't think that the crown prince is going to get permission from his father to to move in that direction. So, so now, who essentially champions the? Palestinian rights now is it is it going to be predominantly Iran with maybe Turkey or is it not even them? It's not governments. There's not a government in the world who actually supports Palestinian rights, except to some degree Namibia and South Africa. Interestingly, because they have a history of apartheid, right? Yeah. And they have strong civil society movements in their countries that are pushing them to do that. None of the Arab states provide much support. There's indications of support. Qatar provides some money to Gaza for basic food and medicine under the under the conditions of the blockade, that sort of thing. But in terms of actual functional support for Palestinian rights, no. It's coming from global civil society where there's a rising movement. The BDS movement is part of that, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, which aims to bring uh, nonviolent political and economic pressure to bear on Israel to stop its violations of international law. That began in 2005 with a call from 170 Palestinian civil society organizations. Uh, so that's where there's, that's what gives me hope. That's what gives me hope for a change in moving towards really ending Israeli occupation, apartheid, colonialism. Um, but it's a, it's a struggle because there's not a, a set of what the ANC, for example, in South Africa during the anti-apartheid struggle, they had what they called the frontline states, the African governments, who in the early years after their own independence became champions of the anti-apartheid struggle uh, in, in South Africa. Those governments have long since abandoned any of that, and the equivalent in the Arab world never took it up. So, Got it. Yep. I mean, that is a fairly sadder state of affairs <laughs> but I, I guess we can like leave it at that uh, and yeah and just moving on i mean it's been about 10 years now since the arab spring first you know came about what is the status of it has it mostly been successful i mean have have you seen more like democratization of of in those governments or has it been mostly a sort of failed exercise the Arab Spring was an extraordinary and regional phenomenon. If you look at it regionally, I think it's very clear that the Arab Spring accomplished enormous things. It opened up for a whole new generation of people, the possibility of, of, of political mobilization, of the strength in 
people being in the street, in the ability to challenge power in a way that had not existed. It was amazing. If you look country by country at where are we now, of course, other than Tunisia, the smallest, ironically, of the countries, well, other than Bahrain, uh, where there was a visible Arab Spring mobilization, things are worse. Egypt in particular, which became the, the talismanic center of the Arab Spring, things are far more repressive, far worse than they were under Mubarak even. Um, and that's true in other countries as well. Syria, of course, devolved into, into complete civil war. Yemen devolved into the worst humanitarian disaster in the world. Uh, and yet, I think it's a mistake to say that it was all a failure. It was a process. And we know that protest, mobilization, as often as not, or more often than not, does not accomplish its immediate goal, but it sets the stage for things that will happen in the future. You know, if we, if we move back even before that a few years, there was an extraordinary moment of global mobilization in February of 2003, what was known as the day the world said no to war. On one day, protests were held in about 800 cities around the world in more than 100 countries, starting in the South Pacific and moving west with the sun, ending up finally in North America, the very last part. And the demand was, do not go to war. The demand was to George Bush and Tony Blair, do not go to war. And it had never happened before, something like that. It was an amazing mobilization of somewhere, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, somewhere between 14 and 16 million people on one day in the streets, demanding of their governments to say no to war. And as we know, it didn't work. The war went ahead. But a number of things happened, one of which was that in Egypt, in one of the places where there were protests on, on February 15th, the people who did the protest there were among the leaders, they weren't the only ones, they were among the leaders of what became the Arab Spring and Tahrir Square and the overthrow of Mubarak. And they said they were motivated by the fact that they hadn't done enough in February of 2003, they had to do better. And so their doing better was they overthrew a dictator. That was huge. So sometimes you can't predict exactly what that mobilization is going to lead to, but it gives me hope that there are such mobilizations. Right. And I mean, just as you said that you can't predict my like final question for those days, where do we see this conflict going forward? Do we ever hope to see Saudi and Iran at the sort of negotiation table? Do you see a sort of peaceful resolution to the crisis in Yemen or to the winding down of the Syrian civil war? Or like, do you see these conflicts sort of flare up again? The easy answer is yes. I see all of that. There will be flare-ups again, and eventually it will end. The question is how many children, how many children not yet born will die as a result? And that speaks to our role as people. We can't just rely on governments. Governments rarely do the right thing, in my view. When they do, it's because their people make them do it, kicking and screaming. And that includes governments that sometimes want to do the right thing. There's a famous story about FDR in the United States, President Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, perhaps the greatest US president, who was very progressive, was trying to pull the US out of the Great Depression and later through into and through World War II. 
And people were devastated around the country the way they are now. It's very much equivalent. People had no jobs. They had no money. There were children starving in the streets. People had been thrown out of their homes. It was a massive crisis. And a whole range of civil society organizations from trade unions to the Communist Party to organizations of women, all kinds of organizations were meeting with FDR. And in one particular meeting, he spent three hours hearing their demands. And then he said at the end of the meeting, okay, I get what you need me to do. Now get out there and make me do it. It wasn't because he didn't want to. It's because he knew no one person, no one president, no one king, no one prime minister, no one queen, no one anything can accomplish that. You need a mobilized population. And that's why we need social movements. Right. Got it. That, that makes perfect sense. And we can all hope for like a more peaceful world and a swift resolution to these conflicts as, you know. And a just world, not just an absence of violence, but the presence of justice, as Martin Luther King told us. Definitely. Uh, well, Phyllis, thank you so much for your time today. It was wonderful speaking with you. Um, and, you know, I'm sure my like, listeners would like get a deep dive into U.S. foreign policy and the existing conflict in the Middle East. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.